0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to More Than a Diabetic. I'm Rob Howe. I'm Eritrea. And this is episode four. This is the final episode in the first release of More Than a Diabetic. This is something that we wanted to do as a sort of campaign launch, so that this is very visible and it could create a little bit of buzz. But it's also going to be something that we do periodically, ongoing. So we may have, and we we don't have them like hard planned out yet, uh, but. We're gonna have more than a diabetic episodes in the future, categories, takeovers, things like that. But uh, for the first installment, first season, if you will, episode four is the final episode.
1: Yeah, and it was a good one. I think that this season, as we're calling it, was full of information. It was definitely educational, which was the purpose. Um, this episode, though, is jam-packed full of some ladies that I not, not only are trailblazers, but that I just really respect, um, whose opinions are well-known throughout the diabetic community, but I'm really excited for you guys to hear their take on so many issues that we talk about in this episode.
0: Yeah. and, And before we get into this episode specifically, I think what's been really interesting for me kind of listening through and going through the editing process of all of the episodes is how similar so many of our guests' stories are with regard to diagnosis, with regard to interacting with endocrinologists, to diabetes community commentary showing that I think there really is a black diabetic experience that is not universal. I wouldn't say that, but, um, it certainly is very similar among that group. Whereas, and I've said this before on the pod, the, a lot of the previous episodes that we had with a lot of the white people, uh, who have been diagnosed with diabetes from all sort of walks of life. Those diagnosis stories kind of run the gamut. Some of them get great treatment. Some of them don't. There's just a lot of wide ranging stories. And seemingly it's been a very consistent story from a lot of our guests. So very thankful that a lot of them came on. You mentioned trailblazers. So we have two of the women on this podcast who have been involved in the diabetes uh, advocacy, blogging, early social media for quite a long time. And I really value that perspective And also Priya, the other guest, uh, has been involved in the diabetes community for about two years. So she's a little bit on the newer side, but she's lived with diabetes for a number of years. One thing I do have to say before we get into this episode is that we didn't pause and get them to introduce themselves and where to find them. So I'll attempt to do that right now. Uh, Sharice Shockley is our first guest. She's sweeter, Sharice, on Instagram. She's one of the kind of early trailblazers of the black diabetes online community and the diabetes online community in general. She started the diabetes social media advocacy chat, which is still going on on Twitter uh, these days. I think they do it on Thursdays. Um, so she's a, a you know trailblazer in her own right. Then we also have Felissa De Rose, who runs the Black Diabetic Info accounts and organization. She does an amazing job. Her story of blogging under an alias and under a pen name uh, in the early days in this episode is an amazing story. And I did not know that about her. So uh, her story about misdiagnosis and uh, guilty, being guilted for using insulin as a type 2 diabetic and now uh, being rediagnosed as a type 1.5 a lot of diabetic uh, is, is incredibly interesting and powerful. Uh, and then Priya... She's just one name, Priya, kind of like Seal. Uh, She's awfully sweet uh, on Instagram, and she is a delight. I uh, did not know her very well going into this, but uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to work with her going forward because she was really uh, interesting. And she's also just, just fun. So this episode is very cool. It's looking back... We probably had too many guests on some of the episodes and they're a little bit long and not everybody gets a whole lot of shine, but this is a good one. Having three guests allows us to interact with them. It allows them to tell a little bit deeper stories. And we still went for about the whole hour and a half. So uh, this is an episode that I think is more representative of what episodes will look like in the future, just because it was a lot to juggle with six or seven people on the call at one time. Uh, And honestly, I'm just glad that everybody was so cool and got along so well that they were able to. Uh, make You know, really consistent and uh, really cohesive episodes, even with so many people involved.
1: I think a lot of the people on these episodes are used to speaking on panels with each other. I think a lot of us are community and, like you said, are going through similar experiences so we can support each other in a conversation in a way that's still interesting to hear. So, we definitely hit a sweet spot though in episode four with our three. And I think that as we develop more than a diabetic, we will get better. So, I appreciate Agreed. everybody's patience listening to our two hour long episodes. I'll
0: tell you <laughs> um, what. It, it releasing eight hours of podcasts in two weeks, um, along with like at the social videos has been a lot on me. I cannot lie. It's uh, taken a lot of effort, but, um, I'm more prepared for it next time and going forward. So, uh, I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. I hope you tell your friends about more than a diabetic. It's going to live on diabeticsdoingthings.com. Slash more than a diabetic. We're going to do a little bit of outreach to try to get some more eyeballs on it. But this is something that you should take the time to listen to. I've gotten some great messages from people at JDRF who say, who were saying that, you know, while it was really tough to listen to some of the feedback, uh, that's the only way that they can do better. And I thought that that was a really encouraging response from. Uh, some some folks who obviously had to l- to look at some hard truths so
1: uh, I mean literally the point like I'm sorry not just to JDRF but to any organization literally the point so yeah yay
0: so you know it, it's been re- very cool to have the platform be used for this and I think it's really important work and we are going to continue to do it maybe not, not maybe not in two hour episodes at a time but in some sort of format yeah. ongoing
1: yeah and you know it's a lot of labor done like we To be honest, Rob, like I know you did a lot of the production, putting it together, et cetera. But all this work was done by the people on our panels. It's a lot of emotional labor, and I definitely want to make sure that it doesn't ever come off as like savior work that we're doing because Rob and I didn't do anything except for allow these people the space to tell stories that they deserve to tell. So
0: agreed. and and I think too, you know, we paid for their time. Um, and you know, just a small little honorariums, certainly not life-changing, but I was encouraged and it was a learning for me that when you pay people for their time, they show up in the professional and they sort of assign a lot more, I don't know, it seems like work. They, they show up and they say, Hey, I'm going to give my best effort for this. And so I want to applaud our, our guests for that too. They're all true pros and they showed up. And they showed out, and this series is, like you said, a total result of the hard work that they put in, uh, sharing emotional labor, and uh, in, in trauma, and very difficult stories sometimes. So very yeah. much, and
1: and hopefully we get to tell more stories soon that are not as difficult. You know, like we talk about it a lot in these episodes is normalizing normal Black Indigenous people of color. So every conversation should not be about the Black struggle. Like we are going to get to that place where we can just tell regular stories that include black people where we don't have to say hey this person is black so you can know already that they are black right so, um i can't wait for us to get there but with all that being said
0: yeah all that being said enjoy episode four of more than a diabetic and keep it locked on diabetics doing things there's more coming your way in 2021 and beyond so thank you and enjoy Welcome, everybody, to episode four of More Than a Diabetic. I am joined by an incredible, incredible group of powerful ladies here this evening. Um, today, we're going to be talking about a lot of things within the diabetes space related to people with diabetes of color and Black people with diabetes. And, you know, I want to start this off because I, I really want to curate an, a very open environment of discussion about some of the things that people of color and black women with diabetes specifically face online. And I'm going to classify it as quote unquote feedback. Uh, and what I mean by that is like microaggressive comments. And most of the people that I see getting that feedback online are women and specifically women of color. So I want to talk a little bit about that environment from a social media standpoint and a little bit about sort of the public's dehumanization of women of color and where people just seemingly give unsolicited advice and feedback uh, where it's really not asked for.
1: It's a great week to talk about this because of what happened with Lizzo, did y'all see that? And I, we can bring it back to diabetes, but like it comes back to this policing of black bodies and it's not just black women, but like, okay, so either you're too fat or you go on the wrong diet and you need to lose weight either one. Right. So something like that happened this week with Lizzo and the media and things like that happen in diabetes all the time where people are constantly judging Black women or Black bodies for doing diabetes wrong or saying the wrong thing on Instagram or going about the thing in whatever way they go about it, there's always some kind of commentary. So I guess our conversation is more around the lines of when you see that happen online, how does that make you feel? Where does your mind go? Kind of tell me a little bit more about that.
2: I was gonna say for me, when I see comments about Lizzo, you don't see it about Adele, right? People don't make those comments about um, what's her name. Her character is fat. Rebel Amy.
1: Wilson. Yes. Rebel Wilson.
2: People don't say that about Rebel Wilson. It's like, oh, look at her. She's trying to, you know, get in shape, and is very supportive. But if Lizzo wears something that people think is not appropriate, if she decides to freaking hold her flute the wrong way it's like everybody's after her and I it's funny because I listened to her music but I watched her interview that she did with Jay Leno or not Jay Leno but David Letterman on Netflix it was a one-on-one interview and she talks about how she uses these crystals to help with her anxiety and how she's been able able to speak up and stand up for herself uh through through social media, she's not going to be bullied. And I think that Black women especially are bullied um, on social. I mean, we've seen it with the JDRF event or not the event, but we've seen it with JDRF and how uh, when they posted their information on social and what the backlash was and had it been a white woman who came from different diverse background, even though she's white, it still would not have happened. And it's like, no matter what, right? I can, I came out of my mother's womb as this black person, as a black woman, and I can't change that. I can't change it. So it's heartbreaking um, and it's disappointing. Um, And I know Felissa and I, we've talked about this a lot. She's actually helped shed some light. Um, on a lot of topics and my husband he's uh, he's a white guy and it's funny because he actually educated me a lot about black culture because like when I first met him I used to always either wear my hair in a ponytail and maybe once a year I would get it straightened and one day he saw my hair he was like, why don't you just wear your hair like that He was like you just get out the shower and just go And I was like, well because my mom, always told me that I couldn't get a job because nobody would hire me because my curls are too, my hair's too big or that I couldn't wear braids or that my hair had to be a certain color, like to have all these purple and pinks and greens in your hair and tattoos. Oh no, but then now in this corporate space that I was working in, I see all of these white people come in with purple hair, the earrings in, in their face, and their nose, and I'm not saying that that's wrong. What I'm saying is, as a black woman and as a black person, we would not, I don't care if we had all the skills in the world. Look, we could barely get the job now. So just imagine if we had all those things. So growing up, I was always taught, you have to be better, you have to work harder, When I remember when we used to have the diabetes summits in the beginning, I used to always have a suit on, always. I never wore jeans because of how I was taught, because I knew that I was the only black person in the room and I didn't want to ruin it for anybody else coming. So that's why a lot of things that I do in this online space, I take more of a Martin Luther King Jr. approach. Um, I'm not uh, Black Panther like or Malcolm like because I want to make sure there's more people after me who have, has a seat at the table. So that's a very long answer. And I just touched on a lot of things, but that's where I went when you brought up Lizzo. Oh,
1: I love you for that, Lizzo. I know, girl, you sitting there. I'm just waiting for you, I'm waiting. <laughs>
3: Um, well, for me, I think what's most telling is one thing that Sharice knows, and that is I started blogging, um, in 2011. Um, at that time I was searching for, um, other black bloggers and it was slim to none. And I blogged with an alias. Wow. I blogged with an alias for six long years. She knew who I was. <laughs> um, but that, that was it. Like I did not feel comfortable as a obese, fat, black woman blogging about type two diabetes because I was diagnosed with type two diabetes. Um, and it's not until last year I was correctly diagnosed having LATA, but like, I already knew about type two diabetes stigma. I already knew about racialized comments to black people blogging. And the last thing I wanted was to deal with that. So you couldn't even find my email on my blog early on. So it it took a step for me to do that. And I have to say, probably within the first 24 hours of me putting my email on my blog, people were like, I've been searching for your email. (laughs) Like a way to contact you because there was none. Um, And that was encouraging. And I have to say when I did... Um, say, come out of the diabetes stigma closet and put my name on my blog, I was still fearful. I never overcame the fear. I just did it through the fear. Um, And by doing that, it's been wonderful for me. Um, But honestly, I can't say that if I had to go back, that I would change it because I've just seen a lot of abuse And when you are newly diagnosed and coming into your own understanding of what diabetes is, the last thing you need are those negative comments um, coming at you. So um, for me, it's been sad to see a lot of the people coming behind me um, endure what they've endured. Again, we mentioned the JDRF stuff and things like that. But there are, I found this out. There are people who troll diabetes advocates. They're like, they are out there. Facts, facts. People who troll diabetes advocates. So once I, you know, got trolled by this one particular person who shall (laughs) remain nameless. Voldemort. um, (laughs) I was like, hey, like, why is this person coming at me like this? And I have to say that for me, I have learned that social media um, arguments and some people thrive on that. Like they are literally sitting behind the, the computer screen or their cell phone, enjoying going back and forth with you. Meanwhile, me on the other hand, It is it is not like that behind the scenes. (laughs) So I'm trying to look up your IP address. You know what I mean? (laughs) Trying to figure out where you at and meet me around the corner. So I I don't engage. You know I say that to say I realize that I find myself getting emotional um, when people uh, start this trolling thing. So I have to unplug. And anyway, I found out by just asking, like, why is this person attacking me? People were like, oh, you know, that person got you, they got me, I blocked them, like, blah, 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 like ignore it. And then I'm like, oh, so in essence, I have arrived because <laughs> the troll found me. And um, I think the way I handle um, direct conversations, because again, what, what happened the situation we're talking about, that was public. Those young ladies could not delete those comments because it was not their page. So when it's directed to me, I have to delete it immediately. I know some people like to save it as, you know, memories of like, this is what happened. I just can't do that. For me, I have to just delete it immediately and then move on with my day. But it happens and it comes and there's no real like, how to handle when people troll you class that you can take to help you deal with it. Um, So early on, like I said, I I got too emotionally involved and I don't do that now.
2: You know what, Felissa? you just made me think of something. I don't know if I have ever truly been attacked in the online space. Um, One person tried to come at me one time and you know me, the approach I take whatever you say on the internet and whatever you do is on the internet. So I went and I grabbed proof that this person did not know what he was talking about and shut him down real quick. Um, but I don't think I've ever really have had personal experience through direct messages or outwardly except that one thing. And it was based off of uh, miscommunication, misunderstanding about DSMA's Twitter chat. It was one of the ones we did for research. And then I posted information that this chat is gonna be used for research. So if you don't want to participate, don't participate. And they said, I didn't put that up and I found it and I did. But as far as me personally, I have never been attacked, Um, knock on wood. And I'm not sure why that has been that way. I don't know, Priya, have you ever been attacked?
4: I haven't, I haven't been attacked. And I was gonna say, I can relate um, to what you were saying. I I can relate to everything that you both were saying just now because I just joined the diabetic online community like two years ago. Um, As soon as you get on there, there there's certain people that like come up on your feed for you to follow, you know, the popular ones they're all white so me as soon as I found a black person you know an Asian person I was like oh my god I'm following them right now you know it it was like excitement because I just feel like my feed was being flooded you know with a certain look a certain there's certain things that were in all of these pages and I'm like aesthetic why do I keep seeing this, you know? And at first I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Is is this like, are, are, are the, are we not on here? Like, is it just, is it just the white people that are online, you know, more than us? Maybe, maybe we're not making pages, you know? And then I started noticing, no, we are on here. It's just harder to find us. I just got really excited when I found other people, you know, that looked like me, but it just, still it happens to where they're not coming up on my feet as much. And I've never been personally attacked, but I've witnessed other people being attacked and it just seems so, I don't know maybe I've grown up and, you know, I'm really respectful to people and people have been respectful to me, you know, in the real world, but online, I just feel like, you know, Felicia said that people seem to thrive off of, I guess, like insulting other people and it just doesn't like seem... It doesn't seem like realistic to me that you would actually say this, you know, if you were in front of that person. Like, would you continue to act this way if you were in front of a person like that? So sometimes I read these comments and I'm like, is this person like, serious right now? All these things that they're saying. And then it makes sense um, that, you know, they're just thriving off of this. They're just throw, trolling people. They don't really care to understand. And it's just something that, I don't know, they do that. They maybe get a high off of. I don't know what it is, but but like Felicia said, there's no point in you, you know, talking back to them. There's no point in you responding. And I've kind of learned that, like it's messed up that people are saying these things to each other, you know, especially to women of color. I've even seen them say these things to men of color. And it's not fair, but we're not, there's there's no, we're not getting anywhere. And I don't know what it is that you need to do to get somewhere with someone that continues to troll, you know, more than one person. Like, how do you, fix that. I don't think there's a way to fix that unless Instagram comes up with some kind of like (laughs) this is like the Instagram jail and the more people that you troll we're going to disable your account. I don't know you know what that is but what you've talked about I've experienced that being someone new coming on. I haven't been here for a long time. I understand the whole blogging under an alias because sometimes I feel like it's not what you say someone can say, you know, something so intelligent, so eloquently, and it doesn't matter because of what they look like. People aren't going to listen to them. It's not really what you say, it's who says it. And I just hate that about social media sometimes, you know, cuz I think there's a lot of people out there that are saying like really great things but they're not getting recognized because of who they
1: are.
2: Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned that because I'm sitting here and as I'm listening to you, I think about all the marketing companies, doesn't matter if it's in diabetes, it doesn't matter what industry it is, they could do so much better elevating people of color. They could do so much better elevating black women. They could do so much better elevating them. But for some reason, they always want to go to the white person that has 15,000 followers or 24,000 followers. They don't care about those people that have the 200 followers, not realizing that those 200 followers are better communicators to a certain extent. So these marketing companies have failed, especially in the diabetes space, they failed us as a community. Um, Not even just a type one or type two, they failed us as a diabetes community because when we look at the numbers, we know that there's what 1.7 million people with type one diabetes and then the other 34 million have type two and the majority of those are black people, Hispanics, indigenous, people of color. So it bothers me that these marketing companies have failed because they would rather elevate the voices that already have that lift instead of elevating those that need that lift. So um, so I had to get that out there because the marketing game is crazy on social media. It's not about the quality of followers you have. It's about those numbers you have. And I notice a lot of industries are starting to change on what they decide is an influencer, but they need to do a better job of, of elevating because if they start seeing more black women more people of color in the space it'll normalize it it won't make it weird and it won't make it like oh my gosh this is hashtag cool we gotta find us a black person but listen you know any black people
0: (laughs) and I think I I think you bring up a great point Cherise even outside of diabetes I think I can speak a little bit to in the marketing and advertising realm where representation of just of creative of creatives and staff uh, outside of the top biggest agencies, which are required and have diversity of inclusion officers and uh, are publicly traded and are required to report diversity numbers. Uh, it's an extremely insular problem. And what I mean by insular is these people are recommended when they're hiring and they're hiring for new position positions. And I can speak to it on a very small scale because I own a very small agency, but Where it starts is, hey, do you know anyone? Do you existing employee know anyone that would be right for this position? And so immediately you go to your network and most, uh, this is a generalization and maybe I'll get crucified for this on the internet, but most white people's networks are comprised of other white people. Um, and I, and I think across, across the board, I think that applies. Like you attract people that look like you and think like you, your community of people. And a lot of times just at face value, they, you look the same and check the same demographic boxes. So as a, you know, again, insular is the word I'm going to continue to use. They're not even looking outside of their own networks. And I'm guilty of this as well. It's like it takes, it takes a, an extra step in your mind. Be like, okay, well, if I'm only reaching out to my networks, then I'm going to continue to get the same results. And that's uh, what I said going into this year. Uh, funny how plans for 2020 end up going, but uh, I sent a, a web page on our website with like five things for uh, all of my JDRF contacts to keep in mind for next year. And one of the topics, and I think this really resonates better with some with event planners is I, I put homogenous programming equals homogeneous attendees. So if you're building a program for white people, white people are going to show up. And, and when people of color and black people are looking at the programming, they don't see anything for them. So what reason do they have to go? if there, if there's no space for them. So I think like, that's, first of all, I think insular and not getting outside of our own networks, not even thinking about these other communities. Priya, you said, uh, when you got on Instagram and you started a diabetes account, the first 10 accounts that were recommended to you were all white people. Uh, I was probably one of them, you know, and I think I, uh, you know, If you just went off of Instagram, you would think that only white people live with type one diabetes. I think it was even for myself, like very involved with a lot of different people. I've seen the data. I know that uh, the population data of the United States reflects the population demographics of people with type one diabetes. And I, the only people I was encountering were white. And so again, it kind of comes back to that insular piece where is it only white people on Instagram with diabetes or is my network only composed of white people on Instagram with diabetes? And the answer was number two. And like you said, Sharice, I think when people are looking for, at programming, may, may, other white people from agencies that aren't familiar with diabetes, they don't have any context on any of this. They see, Oh, here's some people with a lot of followers. Let's check the box and move on without really digging into historical information and like really understanding who this community is. All right. So I, this, these is, typically I don't talk a whole lot in all of these, but one thing um, I wanted to also add on, and I think what you guys are really talking about is the whiteness of Instagram in general. And at the top, the large accounts that are promoted, the personalities, the aesthetic as Eritrea called it earlier of Instagram is thin, is pretty, and uh, has a standard of beauty that doesn't mm. apply across Um and across multiple races and demographics uh and is you're looking you're giving me feedback here Trey. what do you mean you do you not think it's just
1: white no it's it's just white white. even even when they try to do stuff where it's like we're inclusive they give you four different types of white girl like the blonde the brown hair the red hair the fat one like and then they give you one kind of black girl somebody who looks like me why so it's not just the pretty thin white girl, because they've already got that message and then they've included some chubbier ones, that's fine, but they still keep leaving us out of the equation. So ultimately my question is, when we're talking about microaggression and microaggressive behaviors, when does this stop being microaggressive and we consider it full on aggressivity and the erasure of black and brown people considering the demographics in the United States? I don't see no brown people like Priya. That really makes me mad. Why can't I find any brown people? No South Asians, nothing. Why? They're just erasing us. They're just it's suppressing funny you our say content that too.
4: Because I think I was on a Zoom call someone, and it was an Asian person with diabetes, and she was at a JDRS event, and she's like, you know, somebody came up to me and said that they did not know that Asian people got diabetes. I was like, what? <laughs> Seriously?
0: And you know, shame on them for saying that, but also shame on JDRF for not including, and uh, this is not meant to just pick on JDRF directly, but they are guilty and ADA as well. They don't show all kinds of people living with diabetes. You mentioned India. There are more, probably more people with diabetes in India than everywhere else combined.
1: Yes. 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 And I can't find, I can't find Indian American diabetics online because either I feel like they're being bullied so that they don't post their stuff like we were talking about, or I'm married to a south asian man so the culture is very secretive like you keep that to yourself you don't talk about it my mother in law is a type 2 diabetic i barely found out like a year ago so it's just i i don't i don't see them and I, and i want to find them and i just wish that they would be a part of our community because again my question is this isn't microaggressive this isn't kind of we're we're sl- sub- subtly being mean to you guys in some way no 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 We're fully erasing human beings and their experiences and eliminating them from the narrative. So how do we change that?
2: Well, that's for me why my, I know y'all probably don't look at me when I say this, but my preferred platform is Twitter. I will tweet all day because guess what? I find so many people that look like me on Twitter. Like when I say look like me, so I am involved in like, I was so happy because I didn't know that there were so many black women in social media marketing and community. Like when I found this community, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's more people in this field that look like me, but you don't see it because even when you look at programs for digital communications, you see a panel full of white people right so to see these different communities pop up on twitter and the peloton black girl magic group on facebook there's so much magic that happens and i don't even say anything i just read the stories because i'm like i wish i can take this and replace it with desperate housewives of beverly hughes and real housewives of atlanta because these are the stories like we aren't what you we're not Nene leaks. We 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 aren't like that, right? And it's always just that one narrative that people see us as as being, which causes people to be hesitant to want to deal with us because of what they oh they're thugs, oh they're loud, they're ghetto, they can't afford to be here. All of the assumptions, it's not even the stigma about diabetes that gets us, right? It's the assumptions that are already made about who we are as a culture that has defined that experience, the Black experience. And to me, that's that's where it's jaded. But that's where, that's where I and why I hang out on Twitter more so than I do on Instagram. Because Instagram is too it's too, too filtered for me, it's, it's way too filtered. Like if I wanna to get to know somebody, I'll go watch them on Twitter and then probably follow them on Instagram because it's real and it's raw. Um, and that's how actually when I first found the community back in 2008, um, I started in two diabetes um, and I was like, oh gosh, but see the difference though between when I found the community and when Felissa and Priya found it, I wasn't looking for black people. I was just trying to figure out how to deal with this disease because I didn't know nobody. And you going to tell me I have type one and a half? Like, what is that? So, and that was actually four years after I was, three years after I was diagnosed. So I started getting involved. I'm like, okay, I want to share my story about living with LADA because there are probably other people out there that need to hear it. So When Christopher Snyder, who is the community manager over at Tidepool, when he came onto the scene, I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's a black dude. And then a couple of years later, here comes Felissa. But see, I didn't know Felissa's name. I just knew her as black diabetic info. And one day I slid into her message. I'm like, hey, what's your name? And she took her a few months before she told me, but she was like, you better not tell anybody. This is private. And I don't want anybody to know anything about me. Seriously, I hounded her for years. I'm like, "We, what you do is too good. Like, people need to know who you are. And she just wouldn't do it.
1: But She was finally vulnerable with you. So I guess that's like a positive that came out of that is that she was willing to be vulnerable with you and give you more information about herself.
3: But I learned yeah. to read for a while. So like I said, I when I was diagnosed, it was in the like early evening and it was time for me to give myself insulin. So I opened up my packet of whatever from the hospital. There was insulin, no needles. There was a glucometer, no strips. Like I had not, like I was very ill-equipped and went back to the hospital, still have on the bracelet, and was like, I need to go upstairs and ask, like, where is the, the stop Where's they, the rest? <laughs> and we're like, we can't let you up there. I was like, I was just up there like an hour ago. And they were like, No, you would have to start all over and go to the ER. Um, it was very emotional. Uh, but I was looking for any information. So that's what I'm saying. Like I had I had nothing. And I was looking for any information about diabetes. And so that's when I discovered the DSMA radio talk show. And I would just tune in every, what was it, Tuesday night? It, no, it was every Thursday because remember, Thursday. it was a spinoff to the chat. Yeah, got you. So Thursday night. I was just like tuning in. Um, and then I was listening to people ask questions because I didn't even know what questions I needed to ask. So that was probably where I got the first big diabetes information from. Um, and then I started seeing other people blog. Like I'm a writer, so I knew about blogging. Um, and I blog from my hospital bed because it was the only way that I could let all my friends know what happened to me. Like I called one friend and she was like, what now? Like, how? I'm confused. And then having to tell that story over and over, I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna like write this out. Um, So I spent six days in the hospital and I started my blog there. I knew nothing about diabetes bloggers or like any of that. Um, So it was really the DSMA chat, um, the radio show, blog talk radio that let me know that there were other young people with diabetes that was also important as a person with type 2 um you know diagnosed with type 2 that I I didn't know any anyone um and definitely not any young people and then I eventually got involved in a weekly um meeting in my city I was in Fayetteville North Carolina at the time again the youngest person um in the room so I needed that balance I needed people who I felt like could understand what it's like to be a young person living with diabetes in a virtual space. But I also needed that like, I can look you in your eye, I can hug you when you break down and cry. I needed that physical um, community as well. Um, So I can say this as we were talking, 2020 has been the first year that I have not had to explain why I have a company named Black Diabetic Info. So I am so thankful for the Black Lives Matter movement because every year since 2012, when I started Black Diabetic Info, I would have just random, typically white people um, in my DMs, why is it Black Diabetic Info? More than black people get diabetes, What do you mean? Is there some kind of different diabetes for black people? All the time. 2020 has been the first year that I have not had to deal with um, all of those kinds of questions and comments. So you said, thank God for the Black Lives Matter
2: movement. So let me ask you and, and Priya this. After George Floyd happened and Breonna Taylor, how fast did your inbox fill up with new people following you and was it more white people or was it more black people that were following you
4: it was i had a i had a lot of white people following me after that yeah i'm not even gonna lie yeah and i was and it was certain ones that followed me that had like a bunch of followers, you know, like the well-knowns. And I'm like, why are they following me all of a sudden? I mean, I know why, you know, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was funny. I was like, me and Felissa were talking.
2: And I'm like, I think I had like 400 people follow me in like a week's time. And I'm like, and it became to be a little overwhelming because for me, I, I mean, I'm black, right? But I'm not, it's not my job to educate the masses. So I found myself going into that, okay, I got all these white people following me. Like, I need to tell them this, 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 and that. And I'm like, hold up, no, it's not my job. Um, however, what I do do sometimes is if I have a friend, because I feel like if I have a really close white friend, um, who I would rather them ask me questions than for them to get called out and ridiculed on social media. So I do act as that point person for my white friends because I just would hate for them to post something and me see it. I would feel extremely bad if I did not help educate them on the topic.
1: Um, I feel so- that, Sharice. <laughs> I feel, no, I feel that because I know it's not our job. I get. I feel that because I do it also and other black people hold me accountable for it. They're just like, listen, that's not our job. And you doing that enables white people to continue living in dumbness because we are facilitating information for that for them. But regardless, I feel what you're saying because I have relationships with white people that I love dearly, that are diabetic, that I've known since I was little, whatever. And they say sometimes off the color things like I have to send a DM where it's like, yo, please don't say no aave on instagram like hey don't say that because you love that person regardless of whatever and you would rather correct them yourself than have somebody snatch their hair wig ear off of their body in the street because you know that it will happen so they lose their job
2: for saying the wrong thing
1: i want but i have a question because you really touched on it when you said the thing about george floyd how many people flooded your dms and i wonder Just to make it a little bit more cohesive, not just for diabetics, but just like to bring it to the real world. Did that happen at all with white people in your real life? Did anybody reach out? I had somebody send me money for Starbucks and was like, I'm so sorry. I'm dead ass. (laughs) So I wonder, did anybody reach out in your real life to be like, hello, I'm a white person that you're friends with. I'm sorry, whatever. Some kind of verbal reparations.
2: (laughs) I have a lot of people. I was going to say, Felicia, (laughs) you can go first because- I got some stories, but I will let Felissa go.
3: <laughs> All right, my stories are short on this one. Um, I can honestly say I don't know what to do with it. I I simply do not know what to do with it. Um, so when you asked the question, Sharice, like how how fast did it happen? My comment was more about how long is it lasting. So like, even this week, I've gotten this kind of like, I, I don't even know what to, what to really call them like confessionals. Um, you know, when you're just bombarded with the white guilt confessional, I don't know what to do with it. And, you know, I I, I get them all the time and I. Please, Felissa, forgive me for I have been a racist. I'm getting like honest, like I just had no idea.
1: And oh, the so I'm so sorry the please forgive me that I'm crying. Uh, this hurts my heart. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I can say this. I have been an attendee to the White Privilege Conference for like a long time, like back in the day when it was held in Iowa. So White Privilege Conference, one, two, or three, like very early on. um, A conference of like 500 people, I was probably one of maybe 20 Black people at the White Privilege Conference. And so um, I've definitely witnessed mounds of white guilt in one space at one time. And because I've had that experience, when people send me messages, I already like know what it is. My thing is, I honestly don't know what to do with you waking up now in 2020. So I don't think it's more about me, but I, the only, and I have to say this, I'm a professor. So I'm an educator at heart. So when people come to me and they have questions, I don't, my first instant isn't, it isn't my job to teach you. Because as an educator at heart, I I want to educate people. And I feel like if, if my friends see me as a person that they feel comfortable saying that to, I'm just there to receive it. I still don't know really what to do with it. I just simply reply, okay, or give it a thumbs up because I think they needed to say it not to me, but just to let it out. And like when I was at that white privilege conference, they had a whole row of like counselors in the back. And they were like, if you are overcome with you know, white guilt and whatever, we have counselors in the rear. And so the only time I spoke at that conference was when I said like, even at the white privilege conference, you're privileged. I just want you to know that. Because when I was called the N-word for the first time in elementary school, there was no counselor for me. you know. And then I just went down the list <laughs> of things that I have experienced as a woman in a Black body that there was no counseling for me mm-hmm. and so when people you know say these things like you know I'm, i want to be here for you or you know i'm just waking up and i and i you know know i'm curious about the actions behind it like after you send me that email you know or dm or whatever like what steps are you going to take so that's when i say i don't know what to do with it i, I read it I respond by saying, okay, or, you know, thumbs up, or I don't know, pow, I I really don't know what to give you. I'm just, I'm lost. Um, But I do feel what a person might feel to have even provoked them to write that is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. That I haven't gotten anything that was from someone that was not genuine. And I think they genuinely didn't know what they didn't know Um, because our society makes whiteness invisible Mm -hmm. like even when we're talking about who has diabetes the most and what causes diabetes poor white people succumb to the same thing but we don't hear about poor white people because it's been invisible and unfortunately you know like the The white privilege hasn't hasn't worked in their favors if they're you know getting di- diagnosed with diabetes at alarming rates, but that's not in the news, right? Mm-hmm. So they aren't getting in you know getting the treatment. So my thing is just, um, you know, with that, I I get I, I'm still getting them. This You're week, still getting them. I told you this week. Yeah, that's true. I, Priya, I do you from... get them? Does Does
1: anybody yeah, this... like? Does anybody hit you and is like, hey? I'm so sorry that you've had to struggle in your brownness or anything actually no, I don't i haven't
4: I haven't gotten messages or anything like that from anyone about that.
3: no we got a why in your white friend pool mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i I, I to push I, these crazies on her like here you go I know. No, <laughs> well, but you know because- what when
4: you guys were sorry to cut you, but when you guys were talking about you know even your friends in real life like, honestly I don't have any white friends I mean I'm acquaintances with white people I you know my best friend is Haitian um and I I was thinking about it when you guys were saying that like I have white co-workers that I'm close with I have but I throughout my life I haven't really had like a white friend that I was like this with you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. so I just haven't I don't know I just don't Got lucky, I guess. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you ain't met the right one,
2: honey. Yeah, I was gonna say so. Like for me, growing up, I went to you know predominantly black schools. Um, I would say, and I grew up around politicians, so white politicians, black politicians. But I didn't realize. So I went to. I was in the army. I was in the army reserve, and I went to basic training. So I am in barracks with 60 women from all walks of life. When I say all walks of life, I didn't know that there was like, I thought this girl for about six weeks, no lie. I was like, dang, she speak, that black girl speaks some really good Spanish. I hate you. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then her her last name was Robles. And she was like, I'm from the Dominican Republic. I'm like, I had no clue. And it's not because I didn't, and this, this goes back to education and why I help people, even when it's not my job, because I was someone who didn't know until I got exposure to it, right? So if you grow up in areas where you're, you know, predominantly black school, me and Felista had this conversation before is you don't know anything else. So for me, if, you know, there's not a lot of people that will go serve their country to get exposure to all different walks of life. And there are people who may go to an all white college or all black college. And even if they don't, they're going to stick with who they're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I was pushed into that by choice. Um, I wouldn't change it for the world because that right there was the best place to learn about culture Mm -hmm. from women from Alabama, from women that lived never been around Black people. I mean, all in one. But by the end of that, I was the Black person saying prayer for my platoon. These people may have came in thinking differently about uh, black people, but for them to have me stand up and lead them in prayer speaks volumes, right? So I, I, that's why, like Felicia said, it's not, it's not my job, but I was once lost or I didn't know, and I educated myself based off of my surroundings. So now I can say that, yes, my husband is white, but my mom never raised me to be around just one culture because she wanted to make sure that I could handle myself in all situations. She wanted to make sure that I can have an articulate conversation with a white person. So like when I met somebody for the first time, I had to shake their hand, look them directly in the eye and say, hi, my name is Sharice back then with Smith. Nice to meet you. Because it takes away that it's that I'm equal and this is who I am and it's okay. So I just think it just depends, right? Like I had some, some really cool conversations, but I think for me, what got me, it wasn't that the people that were reaching out it was the people that were trying to create something without including black people in it. That was the, the, the straw that brought the camels back for me. You can say, you know, I'm sorry, right? But at the same time, don't try to fix something without including black people or people of color in the conversation because we're gonna be right back at square one doing the same thing all over again.
1: Or even including them in a way that oh I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um I'm or even including black people and people of color in a way that's not well thought out because I feel like this year after the after the murder, because that's what it was, the murder of George Floyd, I there was an influx of amplify black voices, amplify black voices, amplify black voices, and I'm gonna be silent and blah blah blah. And there I did see, you know, some accounts. Uh, I even did a live for one account myself, you know, so there was some accounts that asked, you know, a lot of us to speak and, and we did, but then it turned into just talking about being black the whole time. And unfortunately for a lot of people, I am more than just a black person. I'm a woman, I'm a wife, I'm a human being, I'm annoying, I'm all kinds of things. And I'm not just a black person. So I want, I want you guys maybe to touch a little bit on how important it is for us to normalize being regular people and how we're not just magical people of color to be amplified once in a while. And maybe if, if you could touch more on also on how the, the after of that, like how there's been no follow through from a lot of these people who wanted to amplify our voices and now take up so much of the space, you know? Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of what I wanted to bring bring to you guys and see what you guys had to say.
3: Well, I just want to um say this, because Sharice and I do talk about the different schooling. Like, I'm from South Florida, and um, I was the only Black kid in my preschool. I was doing, I grew up during the time of integration. So no, I wasn't born in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> it's just that when you are in the South, that's how long it took for things to actually manifest. So I was bust out of my predominantly black neighborhood and sent to white school. So like my first best friends were Cassie and Laura, two white girls. I don't know where what Cassie and Laura, if you are out there, I still remember preschool days <laughs> when we used to be a trio. Um, and so I've never had that like experience of my education setting being just like an all black setting or anything like that. And Fortunately, I never felt outcasted either. Some some of the things were hilarious. So even when I was a Girl Scout, I was the only Black girl at my Girl Scout troop and I don't like chocolate. So they used to buy me white chocolate. So it was hilarious to see like seven Black Santa Claus because they were chocolate. And then the one white Santa or the one white Easter egg. And then it was mine. Like we used to laugh (laughs) about that kind of stuff. So... I, yeah, I've had, and I, and I still do have white close friends, and because I grew up in South Florida, Dominican, Haitian, Trinidadian, like my identity isn't just like being a black woman, it's being a human being. And all of these diverse, diverse ways of being in the world, um, for me, that's one of the reasons why I started Black Diabetic Info because I wanted to know how can I eat the foods that I'm used to eating. I love Jamaican beef patties, but I didn't see that in the nutritionist information that I was getting, you know, I like palik paneer, you know, I like all kinds of different foods from, you know, where I'm from in South Florida. Like you, anything you want, you pretty much can get it. And so like, that was important um, for me. And when it comes to the follow-up, I'm still waiting on the follow-up from a lot of people reaching out. That's why I said like, when people reach out, I just hear it, you know, they want someone to listen. I'm like, okay, but then I'm also, you know, waiting. Like what now? So for me, same thing.
2: I haven't heard any follow-up but I wanted to do this event, right? no sponsor, no nothing. And I wanted to have this, like, a true discussion of where do we go from here as a diabetes community. We need to get it all out on the table. We need to air our grievances. And to in order to do it, it would take more than just me. And I just, I'm, I can't keep taking on projects because there's more stuff to keep going by the wayside. But I think that in order for us to really move on as a community, we can't do it with the the big three orgs. We have to take ownership. And when I say ownership, I don't mean ownership. We need to come together as quickly as we can get together and do 30-day challenges in World Diabetes Awareness Month. We can quickly come together and have psychologists, have people with diabetes, have I don't. I hate the word influencer. We can have you know those advocates, activists. We can come together and figure out what's next for us, because if we continue to wait for JDRF, they have they have people that they have to. Be, they're accountable for. They've had so many layoffs and all of these people that were supposed to be helping with this. Most of them are gone, and then if we wait on ADA. I mean, so I think that if anybody wants to join this nice big program that I have side inside of my head and we can get the ball rolling, let's do it because I think it's gonna take, it's gonna have to take us to, to be able to do it.
3: I just want to say what's beautiful about having been a part of, you know, diabetes communities for many years now, like heck, almost a decade for me, is seeing the growth. Like, I think people like Priya, who, you know, you're new, like, I don't even think you could imagine the dearth that was there 10 years ago. Like, there was no Instagram. There was no Facebook. Like, I mean, you had to really go on, like, some excavation hunt to find people. And, like, some days I just sit back and I hear, you know, the problems and things like that. And I just think like, we're at a, at a place where we have these problems, you know? <laughs> because at some point it was like 30 people, you know what I mean? And we just did not have the magnitude of problems. You know, it was, yeah, it was little issues with personalities, but sometimes I just sit back and I do think that it is beautiful. Um, the decade of growth with diabetes communities?
2: Ooh, you just made me think about when I first found a community. I mean, like, I remember finding a community and at the time I was, I was very vocal. Um, and then somebody talked me and I joined a Twitter. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really cool because I can see these people in action that actually write a blog but like you can see their life on twitter like it's when they're upset when they're angry when a pharmaceutical company ticked them off or when their blood sugar is 40 and it's in the middle of the night and somebody from Australia responds like I remember those days where the problems that we had in the community was the same people going to the blogger summits and the cost wasn't about insulin. It was about the cost of test strips. I remember there was a campaign for anti-CGM denial where Gina Capone put this thing together and she took it up as a community petition for insurances to pay for CGMs. Like those were the days when, and people are gonna listen to this and they're gonna get mad at me. The price of insulin, and I want you to think about this. The price of insulin has continued to rise for years, but until it affects a white person, until it affects a white person's bottom line, they don't care about the people who is struggling to rob peter to pay paul to make ends meet but until those deductibles get way too high then they want to make noise that's my issue because people have been struggling to pay for this stuff for years but until and i want you all to listen to me until it affects a white person, nobody cares, nobody says anything. And partially because people of color, we just, I mean, I, for me, I was taught that, and I haven't been in a situation, but I have been in a situation where I watched my mom cry on the bed, trying to scrape pennies together so she can go buy a loaf of bread. So I understand what it's like to struggle. I grew up with it. But for me, we are taught that we rise above and by any means necessary. You don't complain. If there's a will, there's a way and you go figure it out. My mom used to say all the time, I never had to do this. But if I had to go prostitute to make sure y'all have some food, I'm going to make sure you have some food. You will not go without and I saw people on Facebook come back and tell my mom, I never knew you were struggling because you always gave to us when we didn't have. That's the black community. But like I said, those prices of insulin, Felissa, you were struggling paying for insulin.
3: Child, we don't wanna talk about my struggle. because Right,
2: it's- but when you found the diabetes community 10 years ago, was anybody talking about
3: the price of insulin then? Nope. And I was struggling real bad, changed the way I worship God. And I'm going to tell you, when I went to my first diabetes walk with a big organization that shall Shelburne nameless, I went there thinking that I was going to be able to get some assistance with the insulin price. And when I found out that they don't help, that was my last one. So I, I do tons of 5Ks, but them diabetes 5K, I can't, I'd rather help, I'd rather take my $30 And give it to somebody who was struggling just like I was. But I sure did. I went there for help. Now, I got every kind of, you know, swag bag, you know, pen and cup and all of that. I walked away with plenty of that. But that $180 dollars copay, and I had to figure out how I was going to put gas in the car. I rode around all summer with no air condition because I couldn't afford to get the air condition fixed and my insulin. My struggle goes deep on
0: that is one
3: and, and i'm a professor with the good health insurance
1: this inherent need I, i've been telling Rob, and we said this in another episode but it's like and, and just to touch on what teresa's is saying With like they didn't really people didn't really seem to care until it was happening to white people until those deductibles until all until you know the movement released really, the insulin for all really started because someone passed away um Oh, no. No, hold on.
2: Hold on. I'm gonna back you up a little bit. The insulin for all movement was actually started to help people in underserved countries. By T1D International, it It was, it was not started in the US. It was started by Elizabeth, who happens to be from the US, but it originally was created to help people and underserved, under-resourced countries get access to insulin.
1: Well, then I'm glad you said that because that brings it full circle for me because what my point was going to be this inherent need, want, desire to watch Black, Indigenous people of color struggle and just it, that, that's what that makes me think about. Like I just don't understand it and like you said, Sharice, that you, we were taught to overcome. I know that in some brown culture, it's also very prominent Priya. So I don't want, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that from your side.
4: I mean, as far as I remember, cause I wasn't on Instagram back then, but I remember when my insulin was only like $20 per box. And then I don't know how all of a sudden now it's so expensive. So I have to use like the coupons. I use the coupons to get my insulin, but I mean, without those coupons, my insulin $1,900. So I'm, you know, thankfully I can use a coupon and I'm not struggling with it, but you know, there's worry that maybe one day I will be, I don't know. And yeah, like the same, the same way, you know, I think we were raised, you know, just find a way when there's a will there, there's a way you'll get it done. We'll get it done. You know, we help each other. We're not going to worry about it. Um, my dad's the same way, you know, he could be struggling, but still helping out his brothers and sisters and they wouldn't even know. So, I mean, that's thankfully I'm not struggling right now, but. (laughs) Well, and I think, I think that
0: sort of speaks to the chronic nature of diabetes as well. Like exactly what you just said, Priya, like I'm not struggling right now, but like there, we, none of us know what tomorrow will bring. None of us know uh, 10 years from now. Uh, you know, I th- And I think we can all point to different parts of our journey with diabetes and uh, advantages, disadvantages, depending on the time. Felicit, though, I, wa- I, I want to focus on two things. I want to answer Sharice's question because I think our or statement about no one's going to care about the price of insulin until it affects the white people's bottom line, which I agree with. And I think I frame that in a way that we are every every single person in the US is one chronic illness diagnosis that they didn't cause away from really caring about coverage for pre-existing conditions. So in Texas specifically, which is where I live, so I focus primarily on policy, many of our legislators vote against coverage for pre-existing conditions. No matter what they say publicly, when it comes time to vote, they vote against it on the Affordable Care Act. Um, their kid could be diagnosed with diabetes or any other chronic illness that they have no say over tomorrow. And at that point, coverage for preexisting conditions becomes really important to that person. But what I really want to focus on for you, Felisa, because of your misdiagnosis and the years that you lived with type two, the symptom or not rather not the symptoms, but the stigma around your need for insulin and the sort of shame of like, well, if you only just did XYZ, you wouldn't have to worry about insulin. So it's not the same as my white child who was diagnosed with type one and they didn't do anything to get it. I, I imagine that you experienced some of that. And I think there, that false narrative, I think that some of the organizations we've mentioned are doing a better job of helping that diabetes education narrative sort of be lifted up to where there isn't as much stigma being perpetuated, but that stigma very much exists that type one, I didn't, I don't I have the bad kind of diabetes. I didn't do this to myself. And these are, you know, air quotes. But talk to me a little bit about that stigma and, and that battle as a person who lived with type two diabetes for many years.
3: Um so I can say this fortunately for me, when I was diagnosed, it was DKA. Like I had passed out in my bathtub. By the time I got to the emergency room, I could no longer stand. Um, And I was in a wheelchair. And I say, fortunately for me, it was DKA because that meant I started out on insulin. So some people who are diagnosed with type two, they never saw insulin as the thing that saved their life. So I have to say that is the bedrock from which my diagnosis started and it helped me because I have a little doubt that I probably would be like dead. And I say that because when you are diagnosed with type two, everybody tells you that insulin is a bad thing, that you aren't doing your part, that you have to get off insulin. Like that was my thing. Like I have to get off insulin. I have to get off insulin, even though, you know, I recognize it as this thing that that saves my life. Um, But I definitely felt like the insurance companies did not give me the same um, discount as a person with type two uh, when it came to my copay uh, because My, my um, medical data says type two taking insulin. It doesn't say insulin dependent. And that right there makes a big difference in how much you're paying. It also, as a person with type two I did not have access to CGM. So this is before Libre, right? So I did not have access to CGM. I am taking insulin. So I'm succumbed to the same amount of hypos as anybody else taking insulin. Uh, And I don't have access to that data. Not only that, but when you are living with type two, most insurance companies in the States and abroad, because I've lived in three countries and managed diabetes, they only give you 50 strips a month to test your blood sugar. So how can you accurately know what is going on with your body? But yet you're told when you aren't doing the best job, you're doing a horrible job, right? But like I said when I was when I left discharge from the hospital, I didn't even have the necessary tools to manage my diabetes. More or less the stigma of it's my fault from society and other places. The news, you go into Barnes and Nobles, you can reverse your diabetes. Just change this diet, get on back. (laughs) So everything is saying I'm taking this insulin because I'm not doing my best. And so when things changed, you know, um, last year I noticed that whatever I was doing was not working. Um, and it, and it turns out I have LATA, I'm insulin dependent. Um, the, what that does to your psyche, when you have lived for eight years being told that insulin is a bad thing like I say, fortunately, I didn't absorb all of those messages, but I have to say it did penetrate right. Um, it, it's, it's a shift. Uh, it, it, is, it is a shift and also the amount of insulin is also a shift. I get like when I when I um, first like told you know the blogosphere that I had a lot. Of, I remember this one lady was like, I'm going to give you this recipe for a shake. So she gives me the recipe for this shake, and then it has a carb count of like 94. And I'm like, what? 94? Like I have not ingested 94 grams of carbs since I have been diagnosed with diabetes because as a person with type two, you can't consume more than 45 grams. So I'm like, what now what? You, You can have 94 grams of carbs? You know, so like the whole thing is different. Even the day my endo told me, oh my gosh, stop taking everything. Come in and get insulin. You have ladder. The lady got up from her desk and walked me to the diabetes educator because I could not leave that office without knowing how to manage diabetes. Y'all know I get emotional, so I'm going to have a little moment. (laughs) compare that when I was diagnosed with type two I was sent home with a bag that had incomplete supplies I'm diagnosed with type one and she has to walk me escort me because there is no way I'm able to leave the facility without being educated on how to manage diabetes this is the reality of the difference in those types and you wanna know why people with type 2 aren't doing well? You wanna know why people with diabetes with type 2 don't wanna take their insulin, their shame. I can't even tell you places I had to give myself injections and how and under tables and in dirty bathrooms because I don't wanna be seen as the obese black woman giving herself an injection. Like that, that's just the reality and it's hard. And like I say, I'm, I'm certain that there are people who are living with LADA, misdiagnosed. Nobody wants to do the antibody test. They believe they have type two and because they now need insulin, feel like they have failed. Because that's what was happening to me all of last year. I had DKA last year. I was so thin people were like you look good girl and I was like I'm dying like something I know is wrong with me I couldn't get my blood sugar under 250 no matter what I did so I knew something was wrong and that whole time you know what was going on it wasn't maybe you have type one it was you failing you're not doing enough You're not running enough. You haven't done enough 5Ks. You haven't counted your carbs enough. You haven't cut out. Like it was all on me. So I spent many months in my new diagnosis, getting all of that out of my body. Just really just getting it out of my pores, out of my spirit, out of my emotions. But that was all I was bearing, the weight of type two stigma and that's what it causes. You know, I'm just a year into it like, and I'm still adjusting. Felisa?
1: You done, drop some mics on us.
2: Yeah, it's, and I, it's because I, every time I hear it, right, it ticks me off because I was a misdiagnosed. I knew that I was going to have to be on insulin eventually. But what ticks me off is, is this was how many years ago, Felissa? You said eight years ago? Eight. Eight, eight years ago. Eight okay. years, yeah, 2011. You so. still hear the same stories about people with type two diabetes, black, white, whatever, leaving the doctor's office without proper diabetes education. Now we can talk about all the things that's wrong with the community and we talk about type one issues, but until we address these issues of not just type one or type two, but as a diabetes community, we're gonna continue to have stories like Felicis. We're gonna continue to have stories uh, like Alex Smith. We're gonna continue to have these stories and we shouldn't have them. This is 2020. There is no reason why anybody with type two diabetes should be leaving the doctor's office without proper education and the reason why I say that is my husband like I said earlier he's white he was diagnosed with type 2 on my 10th diabetes anniversary very crazy and it was crazy they were like the first thing they did is you have diabetes I was like y'all need to check for antibodies right but the funny thing is when we went to the doctor's office not funny they gave him metformin didn't give him a meter to check his blood sugar to see what the metformin did when i demanded that we see a diabetes educator so he can get his meter i asked how many times should he check his blood sugar oh it doesn't matter whenever he has time so you have a story of a black woman and you have a story of a white man with diabetes, same outcome, get treated like poo poo, because it's a lifestyle thing. And my husband is an active duty army. So it has nothing to do with weight. It has nothing to do with lifestyle. It's active duty army. So the community, we need to figure out how to get past this small stuff Because the more time we spend on trying to be seen, trying to be an influencer, is the more time we spend away with real issues. And I'm not just talking about a type one issue, I'm talking about type two, because eventually people on type two, whether they have ladder or not, well, there's a big chance they're going to end up on some, some type of insulin. So we gotta figure out a way out to to work together. Like advocacy may not be your thing. Insulin for all may not be your thing. But when we come to this place called the diabetes online community, we're all brothers and sisters. We all have diabetes. It's period point blank because my husband has the same regimen I have and he takes way more insulin than I do and he's type two. So with that being said, we have to have to put the differences aside so we can move on so we can continue fighting for each other. We have to. I don't care what type you are. We have to in order for us to make moves, we have to do and we have to work together.
0: I couldn't agree more. I, I think I mean, <laughs> The law, when you like zoom out and you say, okay, if there are 34 million people in the United States today living with type 2 diabetes, and how many stories like Felicia's have we heard of misdiagnosis of type 2, uh, later is discovered via antibody test after years of noncompliance, switching endos and getting re-di- and diagnosed correctly as type 1, a lot of type 1.5. So let's just say conservatively, there's 2%. If 2% of those 34 million people are LADA, that's almost 700,000 people. So when you think about that in terms of just general population of type ones, that's almost that's more than half of the, of the numbers. And so, you know, again, one thing this podcast has sort of taught me is that everybody's diagnosis experience is completely different uh, you guys shared yours, Eritrea and I recently talked about ours diagnosed in the same hospital, like three years apart, four years apart and had totally different experiences. And what we, what we, our first few moments with diabetes set us up for what momentum we're going to have, what relationship we're going to have with it for a long time. Uh, sometimes it never changes. Uh, I think only by, uh, will and po- curiosity, power of human spirit, what have you, power of community, discovering other people, do we get access to the information that we need? It really changes that relationship. Felicity, you said like, you spent eight months getting it, this old ways of thinking out of your body. Um, and I think that's, you know, what I hope, you know, as a, as a greater community, we start to do for each other is to understand that we all have different issues that we're dealing with. Um, but we also all have diabetes of some kind and are facing a lot of issues together. And I think we're more powerful united than we could ever be as independently. And that's, you know, that's the only, I mean, that's all I can say now. And I think you guys are right earlier. There was a lot of momentum over the over the summer of uh, of a lot of people saying the right things. And now I think something that I you know, really believe and, and have bought into from a culture perspective of organizations is what you do is who you are. It's any, anyone can say anything. I mean, the, the, the phrase is talks cheap, right? Back it up with action. And what you do is who you are. Are you going to be on the right side of history or not? Um, and I think that's, that's the rubric that I think we have to hold ourselves accountable to like me personally, as well is like, are we doing the work? Or are we just talking about it?
1: I've been making him do it. Don't worry. We've been doing it. I'm just kidding. Rob's been on it anyway. No, to be completely honest, and we've talked about it in a few series, you know, he's really upfront and honest about how whitewashed diabetics doing things used to be. And this year we've completely turned it around. You look at our grid from six months ago and you look at it now and it's just like the difference is crazy because we want to be on the right side of that. Like we definitely want to amplify these voices all of the time, not just on Juneteenth during Black History Month or whatever it may be.
4: And, and I think
2: I was gonna say for me, right, these I think I have become accustomed to being um being let down by organizations and and white people just in general, um for many years that to me is like Oh well, whatever, right? If they don't do it, somebody'll do it. And if I have to do it, I'll do it, right? So for me, it's and it's so crazy because it shouldn't be that way. It should not have to take, you know, 25 diabetes advocates to get together to say, what we're we gonna do next, right? It shouldn't. When they have the money. They have the sponsors, they have the support to do it. And we don't, but I would say for me, I'm just so used to it that I don't expect anything different. Um, It's not going to stop them from reaching their bottom line. And it's reality because if it truly was gonna stop them from reaching their bottom line, a lot of these companies wouldn't be where they are today.
3: I do wanna say something on Sharice's behalf is that um, in those early, early days when um, certain companies would bring together the diabetes, who's who, you know, (laughs) like the 15 to 20 people, they really spoke a good game and they had the buy-in of those people. And then like, you never heard from them again until it was that certain time in the fiscal year. And then they would rally the troops again. And then you wouldn't hear anything else. And then it would, so I do have to say that she's not sounding like an eternal pessimist (laughs) um, out of not having personal experience. Like it was just, it was a lot of events where you know, they thought like, oh, there is a group, there is a diabetes, you know, online community, let's tap into them. And the momentum was, yes, we get to be at the, the ideal stages for diabetes marketing. We get to do a, like a lot of, they, they sold it, you know, and still to this day, sometimes we just don't hear anything back.
2: Yeah, I've been doing this since 2008. I think we went to an event where I met Rob for the first time. And I did the same thing that I always do. I raised my hand after looking around the room. And said, Where are the black people? Where are the people of color? Where are the people with type 2? Because people with type 2 diabetes have low blood sugars. And Rob, I don't know if I ever thanked you for this. So I'm sitting here, y'all. I'm at this new company. have no clue who these people are. And it was funny because I remember somebody saying, you know, we're the first to do this. And all the OGs in the room looked at each other. We're like... No, you're not the first to do this. Now, you probably are the first to get an honorarium to do it because we've been giving up our vacation time and our time with our family to make sure you have this seat at this table today that you get. So you are reaping. You are getting rewarded for the strides that we've made over the past 10 years. Um, So Rob. Thank you because when someone was trying to make a point and I was like, well, black people, some black people would like to see black doctors, right? And so he was trying to justify and trying to, was it gaslight? Gaslight what I was trying to say. And Rob said this, he said, You check the box. He said, I check the box. He said, I'm white. I I think he said, I forgot what term he used, but I'm going to say straight. I'm straight. He said, I check every box. And you do too. And I'm paraphrasing. But he pretty much got this other white guy to really see where I was coming from. But he couldn't, he was so caught up in his own system and and what he saw in his bubble and not looking at the big picture. And I think that's what's wrong uh, with a lot of people, not even just in the diabetes space, but in the world that they only see and they only can go as far as their bubble will allow them to see and they don't want to go out. So Rob, thank you so much for, for having my back because I'm not gonna lie. I was I'm a very peaceful person, but I am not a very peaceful per peaceful person. Um, I used to be a bully you know with, yeah. with
1: the shit, yeah with the shit. I mean, to do it. the message here is there should be more Robs. There should be more white people like Rob, who no, 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 this is not to make you awesome because he gets all weird when you compliment him too much. So that's not what we're doing. But what I am saying is that there should be more white people who have the clout, who have the seat at the table, who stand up for us. It shouldn't just always be us being like, hey, stop this fucked up, don't do this. There should be more people like him who are like, hey, you're attacking this person of color and it's not okay. And I, a white person, am not gonna let you get away with it.
0: Well, first of all, thank you, Cherise. I'll never forget that day. Um, Yo, my heart was racing. I had like, I, I could feel the tension in that room. Uh, a lot of people that I, you know, it was the first time a lot of us had ever met in person. Um, it was a corporate event. It was very much, uh, like you said, a marketing, market research type event. And thank you for starting the conversation and addressing the elephant in the room that, like, hey, 85% of the people here are white. There's almost no people here with type 2 diabetes. Did you guys know that people who take insulin, when uh, Felissa mentioned it earlier, People who are insulin dependent on type two suffer from just as many, if not more hypos than people with type one. So clearly like, and I think you did uh, rightfully. So used your space at the table to address an issue. And I'm over there like, yeah, all right, this is, I'm all over this. And then there was resistance. And I think an uncomfortable um, response from other people in the room because they didn't know what to say and they didn't know what to do. And I think uh, in another one of our uh, more than a diabetic uh, episodes, we talk about you can't call someone a racist because their first response is, "I'm not racist. And here's all the reasons why. And I felt like in that moment, I first of all, as a I think I said, I'm a white cis straight you know male, white male. And I like there's never a, not a great time for people like me to be quiet like sometimes you just got to shut up and you just got to let it and and hear someone else's point of view and you don't have to uh, whether you agree with it or not you got to give them the space first of all but i'm lucky that at that time i had spent uh, two weeks before was my 30th birthday and um i spent uh, the 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 my time on my birthday vacation listening to audiobooks uh, of how to be anti-racist because it was something that i felt like we had not done uh in my life, and I just needed to know more tactically, more clearly what my role as a white person could be. And if I had not done that, I may not have been able to speak to that in that way. And so I think I want people who are listening, who are white and want to be accomplices, not allies, and want to be involved in how to lift somebody up in a in a in a moment because, you know, I don't want to throw any of my other friends in that room under the bus, but nobody else was stepping up to have the conversation with him and go to bat for you in that moment. Because, not because they didn't think that it was right, but they didn't know how. And uh, that's where, to me, I can't, I call myself a leader or or anything. If in those moments where, you know, you, you mentioned Dr. King earlier, like the, you know, sometimes the, like the Instagram quotes, like injustice anywhere, there was injustice right there. You got to step up and say something about it. Um, and yeah, it was awkward in that room. You could cut that tension with a knife and, uh, my heart was racing, but I felt in that moment, I was like, this is why wh- whatever was on my heart during my 30th birthday to prepare and listen to those books made me ready for that conversation. And it went o- it went over. Okay. I think. And, um, you know, but at the same time, if I hadn't have done that extra work, I wouldn't have been ready for that. So I think that's, that's where, you know, some people's idea of being the change you want to see in the world is sharing the photo of being of be the change that you want to see in the world in your Instagram story, check the box and move on. And I think the work is the work and you got to really dig in. You got to listen to black people, listen to black women, support and believe them when they talk about their experiences. And that's really all you have to do. Like it it requires no commentary, requires no, it's just a thumbs up. Like I hear you, I see you. And you know, in that moment, I heard you, big time, and I wanted to make sure that I stood up uh, for you in that moment.
2: Well, and, I, I and we didn't know each other. No, we didn't know each other, I, and it's funny because I actually thought you were mixed until you said that you were white, and I'm like, dude, I thought you was just a really light skinned mixed person. I because I was, the way I, you I carried, had that
0: Mexico tan, you know.
2: Yeah, it's, it was the way that you carried yourself,
0: Priya. You before we we covered this subject, you look like you had something to add to to our last discussion. I want to give you a chance to have the floor before we close.
4: Oh yeah. I was when, when Sharice was speaking and then she's like, she's grown accustomed to in my head, I was like being let down and then she said it and I'm new to the community and I've grown accustomed to being let down too. So sometimes I just see these things that companies or even individuals post as performative. And I don't believe you. I don't believe what you're saying. I don't And I mean, sometimes even you can read a post and know somebody's not genuine about it. And then another thing that she was saying about, you know, just including diabetes, you don't have to say type one, you don't have to say a certain type. And like, a, a lot of my posts, I like to post things that are helpful to me or that I think would help other diabetics. And I used to use hashtag like type one a lot and I don't know for some reason I think my past like three or five quotes I felt a need to just put diabetes on it because I I don't know where that came from but I just felt like it doesn't matter if it's type one or whatever type it is I just think this information can help anybody with diabetes so I feel like what you were saying is so true I don't think There should be segregation anymore within the community of people posting just type one type stuff or type two type stuff. I just think diabetes altogether, all of the information will be helpful to anyone with any kind of diabetes. And then I know um, we were talking earlier about, like, you know, when you go to see the diabetes educator. And there's sometimes like a dietitian that you're talking to and you'd like to eat your, I think you said it was like beef patties or something. I can't remember what you said. So my sister actually became a registered dietitian because of my diabetes. She was only 11 when I got diagnosed and I was 16. And she um, comes in contact with, you know, a lot of patients, Guyanese patients, Jamaican, you know, and the food that they eat, other dietitians don't know how to, you know, accommodate or, you know, count the calories for, but my sister knows how to do that. And actually a lot of patients would come in. She works in inpatient rehab and they would test their A1Cs and all these people would go home without knowing that they actually had diabetes or were pre-diabetic. So she spoke to a lot of the doctors there and now they have a program in place to where if you come in with this you're going out with this information. And I think that's so important because so many people get their A1Cs tested and don't know that they're pre-diabetic or even diabetic. So I think having more people in the healthcare field that are more aware of different cultures, So they can help in that aspect as well as being more aware of, okay, this is pre-diabetes. Like that's serious. And people should be told about that instead of just being able to go home until they go into DKA. So that's what I had to say about all that.
0: (laughs) No, I think it's so important. And I mean, even, even just seeing blogs about how to count carbs for Chinese food, for Indian food, for Mexican food, for soul food, you know, those aren't the, the traditional American diet. And I mean, this is a headline, like the traditional American diet is causing diabetes. It's not, it's not helpful to, to know what, you know, I th- and I think cultural food and the erasure of culture in diabetes education is something that I hope we can just erase, frankly, because uh, it just, it sets you, it sets you back. You can't, so now I can't eat with my family. Now I can't, uh, you know, enjoy the foods that, that bring me joy that that are my, the foods of my people i think um what's cool about what we've talked about from a community standpoint is on the internet for better or worse there's no there's no like greater you know rubric that you can post whatever you want and a lot of really cool good people are are breaking ground frankly and doing the work to bring diabetes into their world uh and making it fit uh rather than vice versa and i think that's uh I don't know. It gives me hope because I know there's some incredible creative people with diabetes that I have not met who are going to impact people's lives because they, you know, because of people like you laying the groundwork. So that is my professional transition into thanking all of you for being here this evening, for giving your time above and beyond, uh, for being truly more than a diabetic and for participating in this campaign. Uh, I appreciate all of you and uh, looking forward to continuing to work together.
1: Thank you. you. Y'all making my dreams come true. This, this series, I'm so excited and I can't wait to showcase you guys, make y'all look fly.
0: Thank you for listening to more than a diabetic on diabetics doing things. We are going to continue this four part series all the way through January, 2021. You can find all of the content that we posted about more than a diabetic on diabeticsdoingthings.com slash more than a diabetic with dashes in between each word. So more dash than dash a dash diabetic. And on Instagram, you can use hashtag more than a diabetic and see all of the little micro content that we're putting out there, all of the individual show graphics and all of the Instagram handles of our amazing guests. So keep it locked for more, more than a diabetic here on Diabetics Doing Things.